Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Next year, in 2023, Virginia Theological Seminary will be celebrating its bicentennial. Congratulations, VTS, on 200 years. And as part of that celebration, they have cooked up an interesting project. Send a preacher all around the world to preach in 200 pulpits. And along the way, as you're preaching and teaching, see what you can see. Learn what you can learn. What kind of survey do you get of the state of the church this way? Today, we'll talk with the very man who has been doing this and who's been finding this out, the Reverend Dr. Mark Andrew Jefferson. Mark is Assistant Professor of Homiletics and the Associate Director of the Deep Calls to Deep Preaching Program at VTS. He's also taught at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and Candler School of Theology at Emory. He's been a Director of Christian Education, and his academic work focuses on critical engagement of the American social imagination and African-American sociopolitical enfranchisement and empowerment. He has an upcoming book tentatively titled The Miseducation of the African-American Preacher. I think that's a great title, even if it's tentative. I think you should keep it. He is an internationally respected preacher and teacher of preachers. He's preached in many amazing places, and we'll hear about some of those today, as well as the once-in-a-lifetime preaching project that he's engaged in at VTS. And... Last but not least, he is the quarterback for the seminary's flag football team, the Fighting Friars. Though I have to mention that during our conversation, he was wearing a Miami Dolphins jersey, which we both agree is probably a good character building exercise. We talk about his preaching project, about the importance of history and place, Christian unity, preaching in Cape Town after the death of Archbishop Tutu, and what revival might be looking like. Most of us are ministering week by week in a local parish, right? We're getting that intimate, zoomed-in view of what God is doing here in this spot. But what do we get from a bird's-eye view? What do you see particularly when you're a guest preacher? 
And as a final note, we did have some audio struggles during recording, so the sound is not what you're used to, but our conversation was so fantastic, so we trust your graciousness. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Your Miami Dolphins jersey looks great, but unfortunately, no one will see that today. Don't worry. He just pumped his fist in the air. I was under the assumption that that would be the case. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You don't want any haters out there. Dr. Mark Jefferson, thank you so much for joining us today. You said you wanted to say something about how your Christmas went. Yes. I was in Cape Town, South Africa. This past Christmas, I uh, I was scheduled to arrive the week before. I was supposed to preach at the cathedral in Johannesburg, and then I was supposed to preach at the cathedral in Cape Town uh, the day after Christmas. The Tutu family was my host while I was in, in Cape Town. Wow! And so we were able to to spend Christmas Eve together and Christmas Day together. And so I was unable to meet um, the Archbishop. You know, his health was was far declined um, before I was able to ever meet him. But his family was my host during this time, which uh, which meant a great deal to me. And so uh, as I was getting, uh, as as Sunday was coming, um, Christmas Christmas was, was on Saturday, we had Christmas dinner. And I went back to my hotel Christmas night to, to get ready to preach in the cathedral in the morning. And I say maybe around 10 o'clock, I felt terrible. I mean, terrible. Like, I never, I've never felt that bad before. So, I mean, I'm throwing up. I am, I am terrible. I'm in terrible shape. And all night long, I am, I am feeling worse and worse. I finally would get into bed. It's like, Four in the morning, and I was like, "Okay, God, if you just let me get a couple hours of sleep, um, I, I can get up and finish working on my sermon." I get a phone call uh, on my WhatsApp, well, you know, six six something in the morning. It's no one told me, and she said, and "She said my my dad just passed away," and I'm in Cape Town. I am sprawled across the bed. I just found out the archbishop passes away and I cannot get up. <laughs> so I lay there. It's probably about 8 30. And I and I just said, I can't get I just said if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die on my way to the hospital. But the hospital is by the cathedral. <laughs> so if I'm going to go, I'm going to go. I threw up one last time. And I called Father, I called Father Michael. I said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. So we start the service. Father Michael gets up and tells the people. Many of them didn't know that the Archbishop just passed away a couple hours ago. And this guy from... Virginia Theological Seminary and 
<laughs> the United States has come all the way over here to preach to us. And he, oh man. And then what's interesting is that, you know, it's a cathedral, it's Anglican, our church. So it is incense rich. And I am about to pass out, literally. So I'm just literally sitting there. Like you watch the video, I'm literally just sitting there. <laughs> it finally gets it's finally time to preach. And but those 12 minutes and like help me. This isn't like a metaphor. This isn't <laughs> this is hyperbole. This is like I literally am being held up by amazing architecture and the grace of God. Well, Merry Christmas, Mark. I mean, I have no Christmas story to compare to that. I was at home with a cold um, doing a puzzle. You were in the middle of history being made, feeling nauseous and almost fainting in the cathedral in Cape Town. So I have, <laughs> I have no, this is, that is an incredible story. You heard it first here on the Living Church Podcast. Well, I'm so glad you started with this story, Mark, because you're right. This is a perfect segue into our conversation today. Part of this preaching project, preaching pilgrimage, preaching journey that you're doing with Virginia Theological Seminary. Can you tell us about this preaching project? I think this bicentennial opportunity was our way of not only raising awareness so that we can martial development in our physical campus and in our educational opportunities. But how can we serve the church in the world and forming preachers and engaging in preaching? That was the place where we knew that we could invest resources to help to strengthen those areas. So what are the contours of this project? I was asked to preach 200 sermons around the world to commemorate this occasion and to preach 200 <coughs> sermons and places would be taken on all comers. We wanted to show that preaching excellence and a desire to resource preachers and to encourage all Christians to engage in more um, more active public witness um, are, are worthy ventures. And so for me to go to Shadron, Nebraska, for me to go to you know, Bainbridge Island, Washington, to go to Cape Town, South Africa. Um, these opportunities, I think, uh, help to help to provide a way for us to understand the ways in which preaching connects us and connects us all. Kind of by preaching in two hundred pulpits globally, you're kind of getting this survey. And you've you've told me before that these are Protestant or Anglican associated pulpits. You're filling. I don't think you're filling any. Catholic or Eastern Orthodox pulpits. So you're also getting this sort of survey of Protestantism, broadly speaking, slash Anglicanism globally. So you're getting this perspective and then you're bringing back this information uh, to VTS and you're a Baptist minister. Can you walk me a little bit through your ecclesial family photo album? Where are you coming from and, and what's it like to do what you're doing for the Anglican communion? as a Baptist. So my grandfather was an African Methodist Episcopal minister, pastor in 47 years, 40 years in the AME church, seven years in the Baptist church. My uncle was an AME pastor. My cousin's an AME pastor. 
or my father's wow. side, they're ministers. Um, so in a way, that's part of that's part of the journey. So there's the educator part, there's the minister part. Um, and I think being able to grow up with my mother, but also in the larger net of my family, I was able to have different experiences with God, different experiences with church. Being able to go around the world preaching is a result of growing up with a family who made the world closer than I think. I think uh, I became a Baptist late. Uh, I grew up in the Costal, a non-denominational. I grew up Assemblies of God while I was also AME. I think my my upbringing as a Pentecostal and as an African Methodist gave me a, a rich kind of flavor to work with. What I found to be helpful is that the Pentecostal strains that I was exposed to, you know, were were very intellectual in the sense that they, they made use of the biblical tools. They read commentaries mm-hmm. and they used the Greek and the Hebrew and so it wasn't it wasn't an anti-intellectual type of thing. So beautiful to me. One of the the biggest principles of of ecumenism, um, historically and theologically, has been we need to stick together. We need to we need to confirm and build unity in the body of Christ because we need to share each other's gifts. I think our baptismal vows kind of speak to this, right? So our, our general point of this is to equip all believers to proclaim. And I think if, that's, if there's a bottom line to all of this, it's really to that end. A preaching church is a church that can make it, and it's up to everybody to do it. So so this is our way of trying to galvanize people on all the different levels to, to attend to it. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to get back in a moment to your identity as a preacher and filling pulpits. But first, I kind of want to talk about those pulpits. You're filling all sorts of Protestant pulpits. I'd love to hear some of the variety of the kinds of pulpits you filled, some places that really stick out to you. When we began this enterprise, there wasn't a list of churches, really. So it, to, to, this was really what this really has been an organic experience. So I preached in places like St. Paul's by the Sea, that's in Ocean City, Maryland. Um, I preached at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco online. So I had a chance to preach there, but I never got a chance to go there. I mm. preached at the National Cathedral a few times. I preached at St. George's in, in Cape Town. I preached, let's see the field of places. I'm preaching at schools. So I'm preaching at the Iolani School in Honolulu for a week. Um, I preached for the National Association of Episcopal Schools. Um, I had a chance to preach at St. Columbus, which is one of the larger Episcopal churches in D.C. I had a chance to preach at Grace in Bainbridge, Washington, All Saints in Beverly Hills. Um, so it's it's been this interesting cross-section of place, experience, what's going on in the world at the time, what the experience that I had in uh, Swamico, um, Wisconsin, you know, the cheese curds I can stand, right? So those experiences are rich too. So uh, so those are some of the places that I've been that's been a lot of fun. I love uh, political science. I love uh, understanding where things are and 
and makeup of things. And so when I go to a city, I could decipher a lot about a city by where the Episcopal churches are. So hmm. it was also a way for me to better understand the, the lay of the land because topography, geography, and the location of buildings is a lot about how a city or a town understands itself. And so, you know, this has really been a, a, an experiment in terms of understanding as much about this country that I love. And I want it to be better and uh, trying to figure out how I can do that in ways that were authentic. That's really interesting what you said. You said you can learn a lot about a town and about a landscape, um, literally a landscape, like a social landscape, but also the physical landscape, according to where the Episcopal Church is in the town. Can you say more about that? What have you seen in your travels and what have you learned there? So it's not uncommon for me to go to a town and near the downtown, if not in the middle of the downtown, there's an Episcopal Church. Um, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's Nashville, you know, these churches, these oftentimes these churches are near these main instruments of social and political power. Um, and if you look at the history of the town, who founded it, when it was founded and all of that, you see this intimate connection of church and state. And it doesn't, it doesn't take far to flip in our history books to understand the intimate ways in which Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church are knitted to the history of our country. But me going, being able to go to all these different churches, I'm able to understand how certain cities and towns process things, how they, how certain choices are made and decision makers are made. All that tells you a lot based on where these buildings are, who attends, who did attend. All that it really helps to form a very textured picture of of a place. Without getting into trouble, can you tell me a specific story, one specific story or one specific example of something you learned about the way that a community functions based on the location and the social space that the Episcopal Church takes up there? I'm from Virginia, and so you can't talk about the history of this nation without talking about Virginia and all of its complexity. And I'm from the part of Virginia that looks at the northern part a little askew. But I understand, but that's how that's how it's constituted. So even if you look at our election, the, the election of our governor now, right, is a bellwether for things to come because at the end of the day, Virginia is much of America. So I had the opportunity to preach the 175th church anniversary of St. Paul's Richmond. St. Mm. Paul's Richmond was known as the Cathedral of the Confederacy in its day. It's the home. It was the church of Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis and all of that. You know, Richmond as the capital of the Confederacy, that was the church. So, um, and St. Paul's is a textured and rich place. They are not what they were, but they are still that church. And so I was invited to preach their 175th anniversary. So as a Virginian, as somebody who's lived in Richmond, as somebody who knows the state, you know, as a black person who's preaching, representing an institution that owns enslaved individuals, you know, I'm being pinched between these historical realities and I'm being asked in many ways to conjure history. And it's, um, and so I say that to say it's not a light or a dark thing. 
I think the point is to talk about it as an honest thing. And I think one of the things I took away from the Archbishop's passing is that forgiveness and all of that, that, that has its place. But if we don't have a sense of what to forgive and what has happened and a way to account for it and rectify that, um, we, we don't have much to stand on. And, and that becomes more, that became more prevalent as I reflect on that experience at Preacher St. Paul's, in part because St. Paul's is a wonderful place. They're involved in justice work. They're at the foot of the Capitol. The part of their building was defaced from the protesters, and they left it. They left it because they understood that this is part of being here, living in this complex legacy. And that's what our seminary is doing. We're embracing it. We're engaged in reparations. We're, we're, we're making these efforts to right historic wrongs toward the path of forgiveness and conciliation. I think reconciliation is presumptuous, but toward a path of conciliation. Baking powder, biscuits, and hair cream. These are just three things that the Living Church magazine used to run advertisements for. Yeah, we go way back. Well, it may no longer be 1910, but we're still happy to help you share the word about, maybe not baking powder, but about anything that you have going on that you would like a smart, informed Christian audience to know about. Events, job openings, books, curricula, pilgrimages. If it's something that could serve Christian leaders, we will help you spread the word on this podcast. Just email me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org and we'll get you started. Email ambernoel at livingchurch.org. As a Pentecostal cum Baptist who is a homiletics instructor at an Episcopal seminary and as a Black American man, this is just a complicated space to fill. And then being a guest preacher on top of that, rather than you're the pastor who's there every week, it's also an interesting role to fill. And it it sounds like that this complexity that I was thinking about seems to ring true with with your actual experience. Anything else that that has stood out about that that you'd want to share? There's a lot of ways I can take as a guest preacher. I, I can go in and just, you know, give them the old pep talk, I can go and I can kind of find the softest past and just nestle there. Um, But that's not why God aligned these opportunities. God didn't send me to these places to skip out on the gospel text just because it's hard. And I don't know these people. So I'm preaching about divorce and um, Lincoln, Nebraska, at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church. I don't know these people, but the readings are about divorce. And on on its face, people wouldn't assume that that would that would go well. And it was one of the most enriching experiences I've had as a preacher. Hmm. So I'm asked to bear witness, and the more experiences that I have, the more awareness that I have, the more precise my witness should be. And I'm always, I'm being called into account every time that I preach because I'm not just preaching for me. 
but I'm preaching and there's students who I teach and people who I, who I work with who expect me to, to model a particular way of bearing witness. I've been rewarded for every time that I didn't take it easy. Ah. When I didn't, when I didn't go the easy route and I went the difficult way, I preached, I preached, uh, in September at St. Paul's by the sea, Ocean City. And so they, they were they're in transition looking for a rector. So I agreed to do a, a, a fiddle on Sunday for them. So I've been talking with the senior warden and we were able to pin down the time for me to, to come. So I went out there. And one of the major events of the in the history of Ocean City was this major uh, fire experience that they had downtown at the church. Long story short, a gentleman who um, was on the meds and just was in a different place, emoliated himself, set himself on fire, ran into the church, set the church on fire, killed the rector. Big thing. And so I get there and I preach. And, and the readings for the Sunday, the, the epistle reading was James, about the tongue is a fire. Oh my gosh! And that was one of the that was that was the reading for the for that Sunday. I was one of I was, I, I kept thinking I can just act like this. That's not there. I can go with the gospel, but the spirit was like, no, no, sir. You're gonna have to be courageous, You're, sir. Come on. So I preached. The, sermon, the title of the sermon was called For A Future Forged in the Fire. And I, I was able to lay out the homily so that it laid over the story of what happened at the church and talked about how some of us are, unca- are, are incapable of handling that and we're, we're destructive even on accident, our failure. Mm. And so I'm laying this thing out without talking about it. And you can hear people weeping as I'm preaching. Wow. Like, not not insignificant weeping. Like, they are weeping. And I don't know if this is too much. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But I knew we had to deal with this because whatever this church is going to be in the future, they can't be. The future is forged from this experience. It's also striking me that this is connecting to what you were saying earlier about specifically in the United States, we've been talking about having a national identity and then communities having specific identities, different parishes having different identities, and it doesn't really do any good to ignore that. And in order for the work of honesty, recognition, um, taking responsibility to move forward in order to move into the work of forgiveness, as Archbishop Tutu was 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 always preaching, you got to do the digging. And I hear that this preaching project, in it, you have been participating in this work of digging, and also by your preaching, teaching people how to do that with the scripture texts and their lives, but also in the histories of their own churches and communities, like inter- like pulling these two things together. You're sort of teaching them how to do that by example. 
So my guess is that when you're preparing to preach in a pulpit that you might never preach in again, this might be your one shot. You don't know these people, like you said, that you do research on the local community. Is that true that you just, you, you know, go to Google and Wikipedia and hit the library? I mean, how do you prepare to do this ministry among them? For some people, it would seem like work, but I believe I'm, I'm wired this way. So when I'm going to, uh, where am I going? So I'm going to Hawaii. So Lord willing, I'm going to Hawaii for three weeks. So I'm preaching at three different parishes on three different islands. And then I'm preaching a week at a school. So I'm, I'm reading as much about as Hawaii as I can. I'm understanding the fiscal history there. I'm understanding you know, geopolitical history, you know, who, who are the banana people that took over and why, and, you know, what happened. And, and from there, that gives me, that gives me a lot to pray about. And then the text begins to percolate after, mm. after, after some time. Then. So maybe when you're praying about what to preach, you're praying, it's like you're a, a, a traveling physician and you're praying, what prescription should I give these people? <laughs> it's obviously, I, I, this probably goes without saying, but it, I mean, there are a lot of people that really feel, obviously there are dangers in instrumentalizing things like uh, like preaching in order to fulfill a certain political agenda. I know there are a lot of people that are concerned about that. And there's resistance, uh, or at the very least questions about, well, shouldn't we just focus on preaching the gospel? If I preach from the scripture text, you know, leave the rest to God and not, you know, not have to be a historian or not have to dig in the local history or not have to think about something like the economic or the racial history or dynamics of a particular place. But this just sounds like an amazing way. It, it, this just sounds like an amazing way to get into that and to do that hard work. This is about saying, who are these people? And where, if I'm in a certain place, formed by a certain culture and by a certain history, and so if my preacher doesn't understand how I've been shaped, then something's missing. The Word of God might be, you know, not really getting into all the cracks and crevices of who I am. And that's, that's what I'm hearing that how this method is, is kind of working. I'm not a, I, I don't preach partisan politics. I majored in political science. I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in preaching, preaching left and right. You know, Jesus holds our entire enterprise in account. And I want to take that approach and I'm able to preach in, in parishes that have, wide ranges of beliefs, but I'm able to offer something for them to consider that holds this entire thing into account. And, and mm -hmm. that's why I think I've been able to have some of the bandwidth because I understand enough and I live in the beltway. I understand how the minutia of this is done to a degree. So the only thing I can really offer you is Jesus's reflection upon our endeavors. And I think people have been space to hear that. And I appreciate them for, uh, for doing so. 
several weeks ago when we first started communicating, you said something to me that really caught my attention that I have never forgotten. And this is what you said. You said, I have learned many things about the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Communion, and the state of public witness in these strange times. And the phrase that really stuck out to me is the state of public witness in these strange times, that in this journey of preaching in 200 pulpits globally, you've learned something about the state of public witness in our time. So considering everything that we've talked about today, if we dragged you over to general convention or dragged you over to the Lambeth conference, and you would come gladly, I'm sure. And we put you up at a mic and we asked for you to say, okay, well, what have you learned about the state of public witness in these strange times? What would you say to the communion? I would say that our inattentiveness to our role in history disqualifies us from being actors in what God is going to do. And the people want, people know there's something more than what they're getting. And they know in how they're being educated, how they're being propagandized. People know that God has more for them than this. But our churches in many ways have gone along with the trends to the point in which if people have to make a choice, they're going to make a choice toward what's going to speak to the reality of what's going on. So my hope is to help to continue to stir that memory so that we understand why we need Jesus and what that entails. And part of that call to be a faithful Christian, part of that witness is recognizing the complicated nature that we all share. And not just complicated, like, oh, I'm a sinner. Um, but no, we are concretely complicit in the destruction of our world and the dehumanization of one another. And if we don't own our historical roles, but we claim the identities that come from that history, we'll continue to function in a schizophrenic way. And if like, the church doesn't fix it, then nobody will. Because hmm. we actually claim a savior that reconciles. Or, or, or reconciles all things to himself. So we're being called to actually do that and not do that. That's what I would say. Amen. And well, one more thing. I just want to say as, as, we, as we depart that God is at work and there is a revival that is afoot. And as much as we have tried to domesticate the gospel, and we've tried to stop up our spiritual and physical ears. God is, God is at work. God, God has, God has another move, and it's going to require all of us to, to make adjustments. And I and I see it every week, whether it's, you know, it's the seven people I preach to at the ten o'clock service at a church in Maine, or whether it's preaching at the Alexander Detention Center people who have situations going on and they have responsibilities to the state, to their family that they have to live into. You know, God, God is at work and we have the opportunity to participate, but God's work is going to happen. And it's just, it would be a shame to, to choose the superficial things to be on the wrong side of God's history. That'd, that'd be a really unfortunate testimony. 
And I hope that's really encouraging to listeners today. Um, Take it from somebody who has been preaching all over the world and seeing all these different contexts from preaching to seven people to preaching to cathedrals, seeing all the, all these different cultural contexts and the, the vision that you get by just doing that, by just going around and seeing and driving around and, and soaking up um, these experiences in different places and preaching the word of God in these very specific contexts that you do get a sense of what God might be up to. So I hope that um, what you've shared today is is really encouraging to people and maybe in some ways um, bracing to some. I have been speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Mark Jefferson. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, friend. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Join us in two weeks for a conversation hosted by Wes Hill on theologian David Ford's brand new commentary on John. How does this gospel lead us into fresh encounter with Jesus? How can it transform us as leaders in the church? Wes will dive deep with David on this new book, and we invite you along for the ride. As always, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it has been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.